Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. This is our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Lee Burridge, who you'll most likely know from the All Day I Dream parties. Him and Matthew DK have really built their own world with All Day I Dream. It's a party that pushes a distinctive type of melodic house and techno, and they put a lot of time and love into the aesthetics at each event. So if you've heard of All Day I Dream, you'll probably also know that the parties are wildly popular and that Burridge & Co are now putting them on all over the world. Lee will be the first to admit though that he didn't set out to conquer the globe or anything like that. But this whole thing does feel in keeping with the different phases and twists and turns that he's had during his career. I've actually known Lee for quite a few years and I knew that when he came on the exchange, he'd approach telling his story with openness and honesty. There's a really nice bit here where he talks about trying to fit into the minimal scene and eventually realised that he just wasn't following his own artistic path. But I think it's fair to say that at this point, he's managed to cultivate an identity that he truly owns. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. So stand by for the exchange with Lee Burridge, which is up next. So most successful DJs travel a lot, but in your case, uh, to me, it feels like something a bit different almost. You've lived in multiple places. You seem to have developed these connections all around the world. You know, you're obviously traveling constantly in the normal way, but the kind of idea of having a base or like a home or something has seemed to have been quite fluid for you over the years. So I was really wondering, is this a situation that's been born out of necessity or is this kind of mode of doing things just what makes you happiest? I think at times it was born out of necessity. Um, the exhaustion of traveling back and forth between continents over a summertime, as most DJs that do this would tell you, is exhausting. So I sort of rethought the way I would do things. And one of those would be to stop and spend more time in, on one continent and actually going way back that ended up being a project for two years called 365 and I ended up planning out that around the world. During summertime these days the US has become a very important market to me so it became more so in the US than, than before. But also I had this realization that I, I was in this really cool position of getting to go to all these amazing cities. And, and I sort of sort of shot ahead to me being 70, looking at all these stamps in my passport when I was, you know, no longer a traveling DJ on a weekly basis and having this realization that I knew absolutely nothing about any of these places at all. When did I, you make this realization? Th sorry? This, this was actually before 365. So okay. I guess this is maybe 15 years ago. Okay. And, you know, and I guess that's based off of having gone and lived in Asia and got to know it intimately. So I wanted to sort of have all these uh, experiences and memories that went a little deeper than 
just visiting and understanding, okay, this is what a hotel room looks like in Buenos Aires. This is what the airport looks like in Buenos Aires. And this is what a nightclub looks like. And maybe possibly somebody's house for after hours. So I, I, I sort of had this thought that, okay, maybe I could create my career in a way that I got to live in places that I found stimulating on levels outside of nightclubs. Oh, was it a successful experiment? At times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, what are the pros and cons here? Uh, I mean, the cons are totally that you detach from your home base. found it really difficult to maintain certain friendships with people because I just wasn't around. And it's not that you don't like each other, you just drift apart. That probably is the only one. And... Uh, Monster Munch, actually, when I used to live in Asia, because you couldn't get it there. <laughs> uh, Monster Munch is the, a brand of crisps for people outside the UK. Yes, exactly. Sort of like a really bad corn starch, corn syrup snack. But the the pros were also you, myself, got to meet and um, really get to know the city, the people, the scene itself. Because, you know, we, we skim off the surface of a scene. DJs have an ego. You think it's all about yourself. Everybody's come to see you. You know, but you don't really understand the bigger picture of what's happening in the city by until you spend time with local people that are there all the time. And that allowed me to sort of become more humble about my moment in, in the sun when I went to these cities. You know how, of course, you know, it can be a great night in a club, but does it mean any more than that? You get to experience and understand that each city is unique and different. There are common threads. Our music is a common thread, but also so is techno and so is garage and so is dubstep and so is a ton of other stuff. And it's just interesting to see how the ecosystem of music works in all of these places. How do you think all this travel affected your identity as a DJ or producer? When you're using it in the press, you say, oh, yes, I was heavily influenced by, you know, insert local instrument in the music we, we're making. Um, in reality? Um, in reality, it just, just allowed me to sort of share my message and connect with the people that come out and dance to this music a little further. And then sort of you, you create... Romania is a great example. You know, I've been going for years and years and I spent time there. And actually at some point, somebody uh, or people thought I owned a house in uh, Mamaya, you know, and this rumor gets around. But people love you a little bit more because I think you feel like you care about it a little bit more, which I did. You know, I, I love going to these places and I actually have always been a very open person and I really enjoy talking to people and finding out, you know, who they are and why they come out. And, you know, and of course, sometimes you get cornered and somebody will talk to you for hours on end and you don't get to talk to everybody else. Other times you spread yourself thin and talk to a few people, but you find out, you know, that dance music attracts the freaks, the weirdos, the egomaniacs, the insecure, the crazy, the sane, the sort of people trying to escape and the people trying to find an identity. And then there's definitely all these common threads that run between all these very disparate lives. Yeah, sure. When did you first go to Romania? 1999. I played in Colors Club, which was John, who is one half of um, the company that runs Sunwaves. Okay. Crystal in Bucharest. Uh, his club was called Colors. He invited me over, and it was really still in its infancy um, as a scene. Amazing. You know, it felt to me instantly like 
the same vibe I got when I went to a rave in around London in 1988 in a field. Is, bit, is that just the general feeling of everything just being new? Yeah, would you say yeah, absolutely. The excitement of it being new, the excitement of hearing and experiencing dance music in in a way that they hadn't done before. In you know, and and you take it for granted now that you know you've had those experiences and you've built on them, and it's very rare that you get to see the scene starting all over again somewhere these days i mean dance music goes everywhere yeah sure i mean uh, have you had other examples of that i mean hong kong springs to mind i understand you went there in 1991 and uh there wasn't really much of a scene to speak of i mean i, I realize hong kong has uh, not developed a scene that's kind of uh, has parallels with romania but it must be pretty rewarding being there when a scene is completely in its infancy it, it was definitely different because the fan base of the music a lot of people had already experienced it and hong kong was the sort of melting pot of people that had decided to opt out for a while and go traveling to australia vietnam thailand yeah japan sure. asia whatever so really they were hungry for it and i just happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right box of records and see this uh, this gap and it wasn't like it didn't exist there was a local dj called joe lai amazing dj actually but his crowd was pretty much predominantly Chinese could get a free haircut which obviously is great for me at the event when you arrive and you know it was doing it in a really sorry fun, was that something that was unique to the event or is that something that's it, it popular was, in that part of the it world it was unique to their event and I've never really Such seen it anywhere idea. else it's a terrible idea it's sweaty no, and you get all the hair down the back of your neck okay, afterwards okay well I hadn't considered the climate but <laughs> but also you know you can go in with one hairstyle and leave with another um, I think what was happening was there in that scene a lot of the people that attended you know there's different kind of cultural thing going on in hong kong people are, were more reserved and you know this was the edge and this was raving and this was you know illicit and i think it, it attracted the gay community it attracted hairdressers models very specific type of person it wasn't just randomly somebody that's come along and said oh dance music great you know on yeah, that sure so that scene was happening. Uh, you know, I met Joel, we got on. Joel was also running a record shop at the time, sort of supplying, again, a lot of Chinese DJs. But, you know, I was the first guaylo, which is, you know, local term for white man, to sort of really get to know Joel and also then see this uh, option of being able to do something as well. I wanted to complement what Joel was doing and Joel and I wanted to build a bridge mm. because, you know, initially my crowd was very Western. And, you know, both of us... You know, couldn't really understand why that couldn't be a collaborative thing between West and East. You know, a so mixture. You to bring the kind of two sides of yeah, the I mean, scene together. Yeah, I mean, almost, we you know yeah. we were doing our individual events, but we were also when we actually did because I, I I just happened to walk across the road, find an empty nightclub, and just started playing music to a handful of prostitutes, businessmen that, that were lost, um, and you know a couple of people that knew about this music, and it really sort of started with that and nothing else. Okay, and then small a small club that we did on a Sunday night once for 150 people, it was packed, 10 a.m. Everybody, you know, staggered out into the light and went to work. Okay, there's something here. We should do this more often. The next month we did it. 500 people turned up to get into a club for 150 people. Mm -hmm. It's chaos in the street. You know, the police came. Everybody got dispersed. And it then led on to, okay, so we should do something. And if we do flyers, we should do it in Cantonese and also in English. Yeah, okay. To try and bring together the two crowds. But it never really gelled for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. See, what were you playing? I took a lot of my sort of classic house music. Uh, that I had from because I, I arrived in the end of '91, so I had. Sorry, how did you end up going there? Um, I was 
sort of handed a business card in a more commercial club and asked if I wanted to work in a club called Joe Bananas. Obviously, totally underground. You can tell by the name, and and it really was a pop music gig. I mean, I, at that point, I had been a DJ in Dorset, which is in the southwest of England, very rural. Moved into local nightclubs, tried to play dance music when I discovered it. Put on a party on the beach, you know, one in in this sort of forested area. You know, nobody's interested. It's the countryside. Sure. I don't know. I was really drawn to this music somehow. My local record shop in Bridport, which is very small market town. They were getting promos, so I was receiving. I, I guess at this point, record companies sent out to maybe all record shops around the country. I'm the only person that likes the Night Writers. Let the music use you, and I like. Uh, there were these compilations actually that were from Chicago, DJ Pierre or this, um, you know Ron Trent or this kind of stuff. Yep. They sat there. I mean, obviously, I when I discovered that he was getting these promos, I'm the first person at the door. I could have been there that two weeks later. They'd still probably been there. But, uh, you know, I, I was captivated by this, mu- by this music. And, um, and I wanted to play this. And I was trying to sneak it into the, the clubs everywhere. So from Dorset to Hong Kong, trying to play this music. The, your question was, how did I get there? Yes. I, I was handed a, a business card by a guy called Robert who represented Joe Bananas. He had lost his DJ. They wanted somebody to play... 10 in the evening until 5 in the morning playing 3 minute pop records so I'm playing Depeche Mode going back to some 60s 70s a little disco and whatever was current in the charts at that point that was it that was my sort of full time DJ gig finally you know I didn't have to be a postman anymore you said to uh, sorry you're a postman for a time I was a postman terrible (laughs) terrible job DJ and postman they are not conducive I think 3 years Three years, yeah. okay. And, you know, that, that job started at 4.30 in the morning. The local nightclubs fortunately finished early at 2 a.m. So I had a sort of two-hour sleep in the car at the weekend or maybe go home, you know, and wake up with burning eyes and then have to go and sort people's letters out. Uh, that sounds grim, if I can be honest. <laughs> it was grim, to be honest. <laughs> so am I right in saying it was a club called Neptunes, which was the really big one for you in Hong Kong? Neptunes actually was preceded by the Big Apple. They were, okay. they were within two streets of each other. So these were the kind of the key gigs for you at that time? Yes. Yeah. They, they were both basements. They both had loud, loud sound systems, and they both also had Filipino bands playing cover versions of rock and roll songs with the people not really knowing the lyrics. Around 2 a.m., I guess, the crowd would disperse. People have hooked up, picked up, got drunk, and, and they left. So there were these empty spaces, and... I don't know, I guess at 5 a.m. Joe Bananas would kick out. It it was always busy until then. It's crazy. I mean, DJing is ultimately entertaining people. So I was enjoying myself jumping around, swinging from the rafters, literally upside down, DJing upside down, hanging off of the the bar that went across the top of the booth that if there's a fire, you know, would release the water. I, I got into that thing of being a performer ridiculous you know and and actually i wish i'd never done that because it became a thing people would come in and say are you the dj that hangs upside down yes i am so i'm like a performing monkey in this club Uh, oh wait so when did you stop being a performing monkey uh the day that i actually didn't hang on quite as well and my face planted onto the mixer and i had this sort of the buttons you know marked on my face where i'd fallen from the sky (laughs) and i'm like okay this is not good you know i'm probably not going to do this anymore (laughs) so sorry neptunes yeah neptunes and the big apple were basically empty spaces with good sound no monitor speakers but i don't know at that point i never even 
really needed monitors because you were Joe Bananas. I'm playing the three minute record till the end and not really mixing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But then Neptune's, you know, I, I, of course I knew about mixing. I liked mixing, but I, I didn't really get to stretch my legs and start practicing and getting super into that until these spaces became available. 5 a.m. They're empty. The guy, Roy, who was the manager, didn't want to DJ. Can I DJ? Sure, absolutely. Get on, you know. And then Please. Two, two people came across. They liked the music. Five people, ten people. They told their friends, and it sort of spiraled out of control really fast. Okay, so it was through these gigs that you wound up in Thailand also. Thailand actually was the beginning of 93. I have no idea who told me. They came and sort of spun this really amazing tale of this wonderful place location very detached from the rest of the world there's a community of people there people are dancing in the sea you know it sounded really exotic so i just sort of found out where it was which was hadrin which is a, a village in kopangan where full moon obviously happens yeah. and and it was happening there were definitely things going on down there but i arrived and backyard dave the local dj who was english he was playing uh, music on a cassette player, I think, a double cassette player. Uh, I, may, I might remember that incorrectly uh, because Dave also had record collection. I never created this, but I definitely was in the early days of these parties and I guess had some influence in the events on the beach. And then also uh, we also on off days did, because obviously Formula is only one day per month. Mm. And then the Backyard Club was, you know, a, 10 20 minute walk up a hill it was a shack where they had snooker which is you know basically pool with a bigger table and you know and, and it seemed like an appropriate place to set up turntables like it's a big enough table um okay so you're saying that you were basically there in the infancy of the full moon parties as in in the form that people would recognize them today yes yeah yeah i see were they good they were amazing uh, they were very small. It's maybe 300 people, 400 people. And you're standing on a beach looking at where the sun is going to sort of break over the horizon, playing on equipment that was basically set up on beer crates, wooden uh, planks, really polite sort of selection of banana leaves above just in case it rains because obviously, you know, that is amazing to sort of shelter you. And the equipment, I don't, I, I don't think it was grounded because I remember getting an electric shock quite often from the mixer so you know you'll be a little bit high and a little bit scared and uh the mix is in yes you know you put your finger down all the headphones down you get shock you know but it obviously wasn't sort of too brutal uh did you get to push music that you were kind of feeling that you know meant a lot to you only music that I was oh, okay so but by this point you were like able to properly express yourself yeah uh, the thing was though i remember the first ever time i played there and i think there was already you know, a specific sound. And I, I think, and again, I might be remembering this incorrectly, there was something going on maybe with Goa trance at yeah, the time yeah, yeah. and really sort of stronger German trance uh, that was, you know, prior to a trance being a sort of word for commercial music. And I remember playing Kathy Brown, Turn Me Out, which is a very sort of vocal house record. Tom Brown, Funking for Jamaica. A lot of Browns in here. <laughs> and then obviously other music that I that sort of floating my boat at the time, which was, you know, I guess trippy, kind of trancey in some ways. Sure. Definitely faster than I play these days. That taught me that there was this way of playing music, or I saw this way of playing music outside. It sounded, I felt it. I, I think it sounded very different to how I'd experienced it in the last few years in Hong Kong because I'm in a club. 
And it reminded me of, once again, the early days of going to raves around the M25. Because that was my, my first ever experiences of being outside and hearing music. I see. So you're saying that the environment's feeding into your music and your selections. Absolutely. Yeah. The way music sounds outside, the temperature, the, the fact it goes from night to dark. You don't really have, you know, there wasn't any moving lights. It definitely has played a factor from then until today, actually. It feels like it's reached a point where you almost have a status as like a outdoor specialist or something. I mean, have you have you been maintaining outdoor gigs pretty much throughout your career? I don't think so. I think um, All Day I Dream, you know, really came along and... Sort of reconnected uh, you. Reconnected yeah. me to it, yeah. I mean, obviously you do festival gigs, but usually you're inside something. Yeah, sure. A giant tent or something, it's not quite the same. I know we're going to get into this in a while, but Burning Man re reminded me of Thailand, which Thailand reminded me of the M25 parties. So, you know, these stones have skimmed off the surface through my career and connected back to earlier experiences that I've had on the end of music as not as a DJ, as somebody that went to enjoy it. And it's all sort of, you know, become the, the recipe for my own approach to what I want to do and where I want to do it. Okay, so you were in Asia for most of the 90s and then you wind up back in Europe sort of around the end of the decade early 2000s mm -hmm. no 97 97 uh, okay which so was so when Hong Kong became uh, ruled by the, uh, we, we let go and the Chinese rule sort of came in through the through the door okay and that precipitated uh, you leaving or I think I, I felt I'd done everything I could do in Hong Kong and I was looking for a new challenge and you know i was fortunately handed that opportunity by uh, craig richards and, and and sasha you know in different ways yeah i mean tell us how you made those connections rolling around uh after hours parties <laughs> you know doing that thing where you just connect with people and you just, you know you're all like i love you i love you too and craig and i were setting fire to people's shoes and uh all kinds of like weird things um so this is in hong kong in hong kong yes okay i, I think i think i met Craig, perhaps in late 94, 95, something like this, he was, um, he was touring. And I met Sasha during that time as well. Sasha really liked what I did. Craig really liked me. You know, I guess he liked what I did as well. I, I love what he did too. We, and we just became friends. And, you know, Craig and I went to Thailand together at some point because, you know, I'm selling, I wasn't selling Burning Man at that time, I was selling Thailand. <laughs> so like, I, I, I think, Spreading the gospel. Exactly. And, and, you know, we went there, we had a great time together and we became friends. It's, it's funny because, you know, it's prior to the internet and emails and really even mobile phones. So you don't see each other as much, but when you do, it's just the best time ever. So both of them invited me, encouraged me to come back to England because Craig said he would help me out. Later on in that sort of equation, Craig and Sasha were talking about doing what did become Tyrant and invited me to be a part of that. So it was all an encouragement to come back, but I'd already got to that place where I thought, you know, like 97's coming. It seems like a good time to leave. I've been here for six years. The clubs are great, but I, I, I want to see if I can do this somewhere else now and succeed in, you know, I only thought about succeeding in the UK. I had no aspiration or idea that I could be a global DJ at that point. I don't, even think I, I knew what I was doing. I just was it, loving being a DJ. How would you describe what you guys were doing with Tyrant or kind of what did you set out to do to begin with? Tyrant was a flagship for Sasha, actually. I think he, he at that point had got to a place where I think he wanted to do something new and fresh. Craig was a promoter in London, put on very successful events. 
you know, I was just a good DJ that they liked. And Craig and I were the warm-up DJs, which was perfect. We went to the events, and uh, I've seen this these days when my success has sort of in the last few years had another boost, and, I, and I'm able to support younger artists or artists that I'm into. And you go to the event, and of course, there's this whole collective of people that are there to see you. And I, I never felt that in any other way other than they were there to see Sasha. But that doesn't mean that you can't win them over by being really good at what you do. You know, you're, you're giving this opportunity to stand next to somebody that is in a, a position of influence and passion from people and love. And sure, they might come up to you and say, what time Sasha on? But if you're playing great music, you get to them eventually. And that's what Craig and I actually did. We were the warm-up DJs, but we went record shopping together all the time. We went to Tag Records, which was a great record shop at the time in central London, just off of uh, Shaftesbury Avenue. And we, you know, we were very good friends. I guess we developed a sound or a passion or a love or an area of music together from shopping to playing it. And the back-to-back -back sets just happened because we fancied doing it, you know, as opposed to one being the first hour and the second hour and then Sasha's on. We just mm. were like, okay, it's two hours, let's do it together. And we started to be able to tell a really good story. And that sort of evolved over time as Sasha became less involved with the project. Craig and I sort of took center stage. You know, we put out a CD, it was well received. The music that we chose wasn't really the sound I think that was going on in London at the time. I can't even really remember. I know, I know a sound that was happening was whatever, you would describe Sasha's sound as prog progressive house. Craig and I are on the edge playing, you know, wonky, wobbly records, and we're mixing them in, uh, not badly, but in a wonky way. So there's an yeah, energy created between the music. And it wasn't about each track being a moment. It was about each track's cool, but there's a third moment in the middle where they overlap and people are start to go crazy for this. Yeah, sure. I mean, did you ever identify with the term progressive throughout your career? I'm yeah, asking because yes. there was a time at which, uh, you know, people would have closely linked you with the scene, but I'm just interested to know from your perspective if it's something you actually ever embraced. Yes, but if you think about a style, I never really played a style. I played a bunch of different ones and it worked for me and it worked against me. Now, in retrospect, people like to have this idea of what you are, where you fit in a box and... I was always sort of in a few different boxes at the same time. So, sure, I definitely played some progressive house records, but I also played some, I guess, what is tech house or was tech house, but also breakbeat and drum and bass sometimes and, and tried to somehow, you know, create this journey and this story within all of these different types of record that I liked and I thought would sound good in that moment. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, so I was clinging on the side. Well, not very hard, but maybe Progressive House was clinging on the side of me. You know, I, 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 I didn't see it at the time, but joining and becoming part of Global Underground, again, it had a great effect on my career globally, actually. It exposed me to all these uh, markets that at the time I wasn't playing outside of the UK. So I got to go to Argentina, got to go to the US and started building my career there. But as a scene, it, you know, came and went and then... I think the next scene that came along after Progressive House, let's say it's minimal, I was kind of looked at, you know, as super uncool, even though I was never really the center of Progressive. But that's okay. You know, you, you, when you do so well within a scene, it doesn't entitle you to then suddenly just do that forever. Yeah, sure. Did that sort of thing ever affect you? You're being very, like, 
candid about it. You know, your attitude uh, towards it seems like kind of spot on, kind of blasé. But, um, you know, did you ever have moments where you're like, oh, shit, there's like this thing happening and I feel like I'm on the outside of it or something? Definitely for a hot second. I, I remember okay. uh, we, we, Bill Patrick and I, and a couple of other people had moved to Ibiza to kind of try and sort of worm our way in to DC 10 because it was cool, you know, and it, and, it, and it wasn't like, I don't understand this music and I, and my career is over, but it was definitely, uh Oh, things are changing. I like playing this music, but this seems like a place where it's really happening. Maybe I can attach myself to that. And it was a mistake because it was doing what it should have been doing. It was born organically from the right people who were playing it from its inception and and exploring it and it shouldn't just have me be able to jump on the side of it and it, and it didn't work and i had a great time and i and i remember listening to loco dice and luciano tanya all these great djs playing amazing music in an amazing way and thinking oh wow i actually don't really know how to do this quite yet so really i should become per a person that experiences it again and and not try and force my way in and and i stepped back and decided okay that's not my story that's their story i'm going to play this music but in my way mm. and, and at that point my career took a total dip but i think it's the right thing because you need freshness in the dance music scene uh, otherwise should the same 20 djs forever play what they think is right and nobody else gets a chance no 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 of course uh, i mean i think it was a kind of strange and interesting time for uh, lots of uk djs because you had the rise of you know all these djs from other parts of europe and their the whole kind of style and sensibility seemed quite different and i got the sense that there were quite a few of the the uk djs who were maybe caught a bit short by that let's say you know that the whole kind of manner and way of doing things maybe was a little out of step with that you know and obviously this came into focus and then they're like oh shit and kind of exactly as you were saying you know they're trying to do something that maybe is just like not natural to their mm -hmm. to their way of playing or the way of doing things i'm sure within all djs hearts there's an ego of some sort whether you have control of it or not and there's also an arrogance. I mean, we're British, for God's sake. You know, like we did this, we did that. And when suddenly it, the whole scene seemed to shift from like a lot of attention on the UK to a lot of attention on Germany and Ibiza and Italy. And, you know, this whole new scene came to the front. And you're right, you know, people weren't ready for that. And I, and I think some people felt a little put out by the fact that they weren't getting the attention anymore. And is that because they're not earning the money they were earning? Yes, definitely. Is it because, uh, you know, they're struggling to get as many gigs as they used to? Absolutely. But surely we should be pushed at all times and not just get comfortable and complacent because otherwise the music scene blueprints itself and photocopies itself and the music itself becomes less interesting the way it's played. Everybody gets comfortable and that's when scenes totally expire. People were bored of going and hearing the same records from all the same DJs and it totally needed it. Otherwise, maybe there wouldn't be a dance music scene at all in the world anymore if it didn't sort of reboot in this way. I mean, so your solution at the time was just to go back to something that felt more kind of authentic and true to, to you. Absolutely. Yeah. I, d I decided to stay true to what I wanted to play. Okay, I love this record. I'm going to play it. Not this record will work because it's trendy it can be trendy and played by the people that made it or exploring that world then it's not trendy it's theirs they own it but everybody else jumping on the bandwagon 
it just I think it confuses the message and and suddenly if you know let's say there's 10,000 DJs and 20 are exploring the sound but then 10,000 jump on there it gets too diluted and the pure message gets lost and the real talent gets absorbed into the mass on the subject of identity you know all day a dream has been uh, just an enormous thing for you over the last few years and it's kind of felt to me as though you're particularly drawn to the idea of like um party concept you know you mentioned the 365 thing i don't know if you'd put um get weird or maybe tyrant in the same bracket but i wonder what it was about this you know this slightly more all-encompassing way of of putting on events like what is it about your personal sensibility that sort of attracts you to that i mean you mentioned tyrant i mean tyrant was craig's concept and it taught me a lot because i wasn't ever a promoter yeah you know i met craig he was a promoter not a dj you know he just had some fun and played some records in room two and it's funny how, you know, the two roles have sort of shifted a little bit. I didn't have this aspiration to be a promoter. It just sort of happened when I saw a gap, which was all day a dream. And I, and I, and I saw all this music that I believed in. But I knew that I had to do more than just play it somewhere. It needed to be in the right place. The right place was a rooftop in Brooklyn that I'd played one year prior to my first event. And the local promoter had actually put on this event, which was beautiful. I mean a view of Manhattan, but it's 90 degrees and there's no shade. There's one table with a bar. There's one table with the equipment. Everybody's literally cowering against the walls to try and get any shade. I just sort of saw this thing that promoters do where they cut off every corner to make a bit more money mm. and felt with a little investment and to give people an environment that enhanced the experience, maybe it would be so much cooler. That was born, I guess, by going to Burning Man and seeing how material looks hanging above and blowing in the wind, how you see people interact with art or uh, structure, you know, how, how much they love the art element of the experience. So conceptually, the music, you know, it was melodic, beautiful, emotive. It, it was the music I loved and I heard a DJ play a record in a set. But I wanted to go back to that storytelling ideal with music that I had been playing previously. And my understanding is there was some sort of basis for this in the RA podcast you put out in 2008. Is that accurate? Yes. That absolutely. was the first time that, you that, kind of brought the that, idea that was, together. That was the collection of music that I had. I didn't really have that many more records around then, you know, maybe double the amount. But I started to tr try and track them down and find them. And they, to me, felt individually like stories. And coming from the sensibility of understanding how you can build music in a set through different energies, different keys of music, how you can change the mood, I really started focusing on a whole set. And I, and I made that mix, you know, and it wasn't actually, originally it wasn't actually for RA. I made it and gave it to my friends. I made it for myself. I made it to listen, you know, and feel. And... R.A. You know, kindly asked me to do the podcast and it just seemed like the right thing to do and it wasn't even really representing what I was doing in a club at the time and I didn't think it was going to get me more gigs. It was an honest a musical expression from my heart of, I love this and I actually want other people to hear it. The filters at the time, the people I'd given it to also, they played it over and over. There was something about it that sort of drew them back to it again and again. And, you know, it just felt like something honest and something special. And it was the first step forward of taking it to a wider audience i mean you talked a lot about the melodic aspects of the music are there other kind of characteristics that you would identify with you know with the sound or with this idea that you were formulating 
the energy of yeah. it actually uh, it was definitely um more delicate it was a bit slower than what you were playing before <clears throat> uh, only by a couple of bpm okay. i think it, it it had less drive to it certain records have have a certain drive but it, it was more patient these are all the sort of words i've always used to describe when i've worked in the studio you know I, it doesn't have to give itself away immediately it can take its time it can be more far out feeling more delicate feeling and i think people can engage with that but only if you tell the whole story if you lead them to that moment with that music it felt brave to play it actually because of course there's this guy and he's not a person but it's a person who uh, is manifested in all around the world and he stands at the front of the booth and he puts his hands in front of him and he waves upwards and it means play harder play faster play more energy and he affected me in different places at certain points in my career you know i, I had a panic and i thought oh my god i'm not doing a the right job and every time i would lose the dance floor because i i, I lost faith in my own story in that moment or my ability to take people where i wanted to you know not ev not everywhere but occasionally usually the girls would leave the dance floor and then slowly the guys would leave the dance floor and then you'd end up with you know 14 people and that guy <laughs> so i became really sort of aware of the fact that you just have to trust in your taste and you have to understand that you I could tell a story and that was what it was about not maintaining a specific energy to have people pumping their fists in the air I can do that it's really easy for me but it wasn't what I wanted to do anymore I wanted to push my boundaries and try harder to to sort of push out musically from one edge to my own area and that's where all our dreams sort of came from and what was it that Matthew DK was doing in the studio that felt so compatible with your idea Matthew actually was not doing anything uh, we weren't really on each other's radar other than friends said you guys should hang out you are very similar people you are you know this that and the other and i met matthew in a, in a club night in new york matthew was transitioning away from his world at the time and i decided to move to new york i was sort of invested in this idea of this is what i wanted to do at the point matthew and i met we really got along started talking on skype and at some point i think i a few months later i said matt we should go in the studio together oh my god that's exactly what i was thinking i was going to skype you today and say the same thing you know and the first chat we did actually wasn't really an exploration of where we got to it was uh, it was wongle and it was actually a pretty tough track and you know I, matthew is genius in the studio and i'm an idiot i'm like the village idiot in the stocks you know shouting more reverb in the background and, and matthew you know was very generous and opened up his world to me and showed me so much that i couldn't even take it on board at the time you know he's just just brilliant but i gave matt the mix actually and matthew's a very musical human being and uh, and composer and he absorbed it and he studied it and it like really turned him on and of course you know i started talking about the all day i dream idea he that was totally resonating with him at the time and then we started sort of heading in that direction musically i always you know like think people that work together some of course are on par with each other but there's definitely a dj and a producer duo sometimes within this sort of creative process I'm, I'm the sprinkles on the cupcake and and I, I wish i could take more credit for the music but i won't and I, I think that comes from just wanting 
the world to know that you know these producers are so so talented you know i i've definitely have been able to steer ships in certain directions that they weren't going they might have gone in that direction but i think that's my been my influence in the past have you felt the desire to go deeper into the craft or have you always felt more comfortable just being somewhat on the peripheries of it i absolutely want to and every time i try i don't have time and I think you really need to sit for, even at the beginning, just sit for six months and understand one thing fully and get the most out of it. You know, because we have, we have everything at our disposal these days. And it's just, I don't know if you ever played video games, but I would go and buy 10 games and I would pay 5% of each game and I would never get that good at one game. And it's the same in the studio. And I think that this week, actually, I was trying to figure out in, uh, in my space, okay, I, I think I can put a desk here and I, and I need to learn again because... Sure, I can definitely maintain my career by being a part of this process. And that's what's happening. But there's this part of me that wants to know. There's this part of me that wants to be able to do more. And I just need to carve out time. But becoming you know, a promoter on top of being a DJ, on top of being not at home constantly, I'm amazing at making excuses not to do it. <laughs> but I will get there. So in the, t you know, in the short term, I'm working and you know, trying to absorb little pieces of information and shouting more reverb and trying to sort of be more of a, a curator of the sound rather than a producer of the sound. But so returning to all day I dream, imagining that with, so with a situation where you have a pretty tight concept or presumably an idealized scenario that, you know, you have in your head for what these events should look like and mm -hmm. feel like, I was wondering if there was a particular event that you've put on that, f that you felt really, really nailed it, you know, where you felt like all of the pieces came together and it was just like phenomenal. Every single one. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. No, no, no. I, I mean, New York is the spiritual home of All Day I Dream. It was the right time for the city and the people. It was the right time for me. It was the right location. I picked the right sound system since it, 2011 has built upon itself. So I, I literally, the, the aesthetic of the first event, certain elements, I woke up in, a, in the middle of the night and had this, I, I want to build something with bamboo, they have to be teepees, they have to hold up material. I wanted this organic feel because we're in a very industrial area, cement, grayness, you know, very stark. Of course, you've got blue sky, which is amazing, and a view of Manhattan. I would say New York because it's ever-evolving and it's the place that I've put the most money into building the decor. The spaces have been really cool. Yeah, two years ago, I think we had, when we transitioned from the well to the mirage, it just so amazing i mean the crowd sort of without us pushing or advertising really just doubled in size but the integrity remained mm. and also san francisco last year i got to do golden gate park which is just such an epic location and a place called treasure island the wind works against us because we have these kind of kite like pieces of material that dangle which with a slight breeze look kind of cute you know, they get really good movement and shape. When it's fast wind, you know, the whole thing's about to tip over. So we lose certain aesthetics. But what we lose with material, we make up with with the water that was surround it, surrounding us or in Golden Gate Park, the sort of lush vegetation. And that's all a part of the experience. You know, I've definitely been offered the opportunity to go and do this in a parking lot. And I can save myself thousands of dollars. But I feel like it will feel different. And I, I don't want to do that. I want to sort of enhance at every moment whatever 
one detail, if we can add one more detail and one person notices it, I feel like that has an effect. How influential have your experiences at Burning Man been on the party? They're an integral part of the idea and seeing how people react to nature, um, seeing how structures look in open spaces, how colour works against a muted background. They've all been sort of elements to that have led me to the aesthetic of, of the whole event. So when did you first go to Burning Man? I think 2005. So presumably you've been sort of well-placed to observe changes. I was just wondering what you felt about the kind of prevalent media narrative that seems to be around the festival now where it's kind of being portrayed as this you know playground for the for the money elite of the west coast do you get that sense you know someone who's been going for a long time like has it changed like has that element been a factor or is this just kind of a a, a media construct i think it's the point i think it's supposed to change it's an evolving project and when things stay the, st the same, they become stale and stagnate. It depends who you ask. I mean, if you're one of those people in the camp, they're having a great time. And if you're a person in a tent looking at those people and, you know, it's been brutal with the weather and the, all your stuff's blown away, then it's probably really annoying. But it's a city, so you need kind of all these different layers and all these different types of people. You're never going to sort of nail it 100% of the time. So there's always going to be somebody bothered by something. But uh, when I went in 2005, I was in a tiny tent, so I was roughing it for me. I vowed I would never do that again because it was just too much, you know, at my age and all those kind of things that you say. I would wake up, you know, it's freezing cold, my back's hurting, you know, I'm laying on a yoga mat in a sleeping bag. But it was fun and it was great to have that experience. But I've moved into, I actually own a trailer now. I'm kind of my own trailer trash because I like to sort of turn up at Burning Man and just unpack and have it everything ready to go and the least effort possible i'm definitely going to go every year unless something awful happens in my life or somebody gets married and forces me to go you know to their stupid wedding it's not happening people <laughs> the media definitely have blown it out of proportion i think i mean there's, there's always been that element there it's just amplified now and visible burning man didn't speak about themselves for years they've transitioned themselves so they want more people to experience their festival that's okay, you know, and, and it's going to change. But it depends what those people bring the second year they come. Because if they come and they just repeat this process of, we, we're here to party, screw everybody else, then that's not great because it's a community experience. But I really think that it has an effect on so many different people. <laughs> it's like, it sounds so like strange, but I was at a party in London and Bill Patrick walks around the corner with Paris Hilton. Doesn't it sound like the beginning of a joke? Yeah, uh, we were, you know, we were two, between the two rooms and we talked a lot about Burning Man and she said how it had affected her life. You maybe wouldn't expect to hear that coming from somebody like her. But if you open your eyes to the experience and you're prepared to grow as a human being, anybody can be affected. And then I feel that if you are affected, maybe you pour that back into the festival and the person that first year was there riding around on their electric scooter or their Segway, you know, looking like a knob and acting like one, maybe the second year will get it, go back and help be a part of something or build an art project or bring other people that they might think would benefit with the knowledge of, okay, you know, I did this, it was kind of wrong, so we should come and we should have fun, but we should also, you know, participate. So along the lines of people getting it, you've been really close to the US market now for kind of 
10, 15 years, I guess. So you're talking about you know, your key party having its spiritual home in New York. How do you think things have shifted in the US? And again, we're talking about a subject that's had a lot of media attention. You know, we're talking about rapid growth and all of these different things. But how has the audience for what you do changed in the last decade? They've become more connected within the nation and it's become more of a an underground scene in the US, not just in specific cities. This is a very uneducated uh, statement, but it seems to me that in the past, Chicago House was massive, but not not across that country. Detroit Techno, amazing, but didn't really reach out uh, in a big way to every single city in the way that music is now, and it's only due to technology and the connection of people and the fact that people do travel now they don't just go to the local school school dance you know they will travel across to go to a club festival an event and that's across the country or across the world so they're definitely more knowledgeable and there was a thirst there for okay i discovered trance or edm or whatever i'm kind of bored of this now what else and they're looking and they're finding and people on the ground there are also creating with the experience and knowledge of other people that have done that within the US. So it's definitely become more of a, a national scene, a national underground scene. And it's amazing. I mean, I, I actually play at great events in the US and that isn't just in the key cities. You know, you can go mm. to Boston or to um, Atlanta or to uh, San Diego and there's stuff going on, you know, and it's not going to be 4,000 people in a club, but it's knowledgeable people in a club and it's, surely never about the number of people that are there. It's about the connection that they have to that experience and the understanding and the passion. Does it feel to you as though people have jumped on your sound a little bit in the last few years? Do I have a sound? Is it my sound? I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> okay, so we were talking before about, you know, you may be jumping on the minimal thing, but I get the sense that the kind of dreamy house and techno that you guys are pushing or have been pushing for... Well, four or five years or however long it is has really become a thing do you have that feeling that people are maybe replicating what you're doing or like what you're doing is generally becoming more of a widespread I hope um, so yeah no I mean I hope so I mean it, it's still not going to be for everybody do you know the club The Underground in Ibiza oh yes yeah Yeah, and they, I, gotta, I still wear the shirt actually they, there's a shirt and it says not for everybody on the back and I thought it was the best tagline there are easier sounds to play but I think what is happening is people people love the experience and they've noticed the success and, and it's going to happen. But it's sort of pulled out of people a musical side, producers, and it's also given another different experience to people because obviously we do a lot of these things during the day and people might not have actually thought about going out so much during the day in certain places. So there's another experience that they can have. And I'm not asking the people that go out or I'm not asking the people that play the music to only do that, but you can add it as one of the things that you do as long as you understand it and do it well. Because I think also maybe you can do it in a clunky way and it probably doesn't feel quite the same. But that then that's down to just listening and growing as a, as a DJ or as a producer anyway. Would you say you are still growing as a DJ? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the day that I stopped wanting to grow I'll plateau and then people will get bored of me and I should give up I, I like going whenever I can to hear somebody else playing music because it doesn't even have to be the music I'm into if somebody's playing it really well you learn something you see something you experience something a different feeling and maybe it 
slightly alters your direction as well. It adds, you know, okay, uh, uh, there's a Mr. G record I heard and I love it. And I'd forgotten about Mr. G for the time being, but I'm going to play this. And then it opens that doorway to that music again and, and allows this sort of story that you've been telling through your life and the threads to have another thread to take you mm. slightly to the left or the right. You don't have to go down that road for any more than one week if you don't want to, but maybe you'll discover other artists. You know, there's so many ways and tools now to have Mr. G connected to so many different artists that I, I can't keep up with all the genres and all the tracks and all the labels. So I need other people to help me sometimes. So I guess I haven't been doing this for but like 30 or more years. When you reach this point, the improvements maybe aren't or don't come from a technical standpoint, but it comes down to like the richness of your palette or the diversity mm -hmm. of your palette. And that's kind of the way you keep things moving forward. Absolutely. I mean, I've never been a particularly technology oriented DJ. You know, I, I know how everything works, um, but I'm not a scratcher. I'm not. I, I like loops. You know, I, sure. I found loops the real addition since the little outboard piece of equipment that we used, you know, with a few different choices to whatever tractor was opening up. Yeah. Because you can bring things in and out. You can, like, leave the sense and the essence of a track from 20 minutes ago in the background, and it's a trippier experience. And yeah, I think, sure. for me, that's one layer of the energy that I bring. But definitely, it's about the flavor of what I want to do. I, I'm learning from other people all the time and experiencing, you know, other people's take on what's going on. Does DJing feel like something you can continue to do indefinitely? On my 45th birthday, I had this sort of thought that, okay, so in 10 years, I'll be 55. Maybe it's the time that would be a great age to, to not retire, but to sort of pull it back a little bit and not try and do it in the way that I've done it for 30 odd years and I'm still sort of holding true to that but then three years went by really fast and I suddenly said oh my god only seven years left and started panicking and I, I don't see why you shouldn't be able to you know we never had to be the good looking artist and you could be that guy that weird guy sort of crouched over with you know slightly rounded back in the darkened DJ booth and people aren't looking to you for your looks they're looking they're listening to you actually so yeah i i, I don't think 55 i'll be like i'm retiring i'm done I, I i love it i'll retire when i don't when it becomes a job and not a passion not a hobby i, I meet so many people that say i'm just a hobby dj and i actually i hope it's not, not like sort of condescending or weird but i say me too because it never was a job for me the, the money is the last reason to do this you know and I used to make a joke to the promoters and, you know, go up to them at the end, pretend I don't remember they're the promoter and say, don't tell the promoter this, but I totally would have done this for free tonight. It was so much fun. When it becomes a job, you become somebody different and it's a passion. You know, it's this like thing that I've loved for so long and, I, and I've been given this gift and this opportunity to still do it at this point. You know, will there be a dance music scene in 10 years time? Perhaps, perhaps not. I don't know. It depends. But I hope so. And I think I'm going to just, you know, I, when I go deaf in one ear or you know I, ca I can't travel in the way that i travel now I'll, I'll go down in stages i think you know I'll, I'll dj less probably but i'll always want to dj 